0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My
0: name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back again, catching up on listener mail. It's been a while. Uh, So this is the second uh, of our recent dives into the the long-gathering
1: mailbag. That's right. And, you know, unfortunately— uh, Carney, our mail bot, listened to our uh, discussion of deja vu, and has now updated his system to incorporate deja vu simulations. So we're having a lot of trouble here because he thinks he keeps he keeps pulling up emails, uh, mail from listeners that he thinks that we have read before. Uh, so we have mm. to get them back out of his trash, reevaluate them. Uh, it's it's really touch and go. Yeah, there is no bigger hassle than a robot in a time loop. <laughs> Got to keep that arrow of time with him. That's right, but but I don't know. I think maybe he's doing well enough to get us through one more listener mail here, and then we'll start, you know, running some uh, corrective protocols on him. Right, diagnostics time, Carney. It's coming.
0: All right, well, maybe we should uh, first take a look at this email we got from Ming. Now, uh, this was in response to our episode MIB or NIB. Uh, I think this was – did we feature this from the vault recently? I think we did. I believe we did, yeah. Yeah, so this episode uh, concerned similarities underlying traditional paranormal experiences that people attribute to supernatural forces like the devil. And then, you know, mid to late 20th century experiences of the so-called men in black. Or what uh, could be the, you know, what could be the common underlying psychology and uh, stuff like that uh, with those two types of experiences? So essentially, we're talking about the ways that UFO beliefs might spring from the same wells as more traditional religious or supernatural beliefs. And toward the end of the episode, I think I wondered out loud. If there was any modern folklore in Chinese culture similar to the alien abduction and men in black complex in in American culture, I couldn't find any evidence of that, but I asked uh, listeners if they knew of anything like that. And so in response, we got this great message from Ming. Uh, So Ming says, Hi again, Robert and Joe. Hope you're both doing well and staying safe inside during this crazy time. Your playlists have been powering me through my work from home days here in Toronto. I wanted to write in after listening to the MIB or NIB episode again, as your conversation about aliens, MIB, and what it'd be like uh, in other cultures reminded me of a few fun thoughts. I'm not an ancient aliens person, but I do like to speculate in the name of science fiction and lore. Uh, Growing up Chinese, I've also fed off of legends and myths of Asia. There's an idiom in Chinese that literally translates to heavenly clothes have no seams,
2: Hmm. uh,
0: but figuratively describes things that are perfect, flawless and, you know, seamless. The story behind the idiom was written during the Five Dynasties, and relates that a poet napping outside one night saw a heavenly figure descending from the skies. She was beautiful, and her clothes were glowing. She introduced herself as the Weaver Girl, from the myth of the cowherd and the Weaver Girl, and he noticed that her clothes had no seams. When he asked about it, she simply answered that clothes in heaven are made perfectly, do not require stitching, and therefore have no seams. Going off of the aliens idea, it's fun to imagine if she had been an alien and was wearing some kind of seamless bodysuit that aliens are often uh, kitted out with in movies. To further link it to Aliens and Space, the Weaver Girl is the Chinese name for the star Vega, the cowherd is in Altair, uh, which makes me wonder if she'd meant uh, she was from Vega in. Instead of actually being Vega or the Weaver girl. Oh, like she was from Vega. Uh, which is great because Vega is where the alien radio signal comes from in Carl Sagan's contact. But uh, back to Ming's message, Uh, there's also another piece of lore about Chinese legends that loosely relates to the theory of relativity. A day in the heavens, a year on Earth. Protagonists of stories who were mortal or earthly to start with often find out too late that once they ascend to the heavens, a single day up in the sky means a year has passed down on Earth. So the mortal family they once had were all but gone by the time they've managed to finish the task they needed to do up in the heavens. I've read some discussion in Chinese about this. Some people think that the concept came about because ancient people understood that time passes differently depending on perception. But a great many who are into sci-fi, or the ancient alien truthers, believe this is possible proof that an ancient people understood the theory of relativity because someone somewhere had experience with space travel. Anyway, these stories have some very loose ties to things you spoke about in the episode. Beings descended from the heavens or space, ancient aliens, sleep-related phenomena. So thank you both for reminding me of these interesting if-stray thoughts. Thank you also for pulling in threads from other cultures while discussing many of your topics. It may seem a small act for you, but it really enriches the podcast experience for people of other cultures.
1: Keep doing what you do, and much love from Toronto, Ming. Awesome. Well, that was a wonderful listener mail. Uh, you know, obviously we, we love to hear about uh, 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 you know, multicultural examples of some of the uh, the topics we've discussed. And yeah, this one was a, was a real treat because I, I guess for, for me when I'm hearing this, it, it reminds me a lot of what I'm, I'm pretty sure we discussed in that particular episode, the idea that like a, an incubus or a succubus in, in various uh, European traditions would have like a telltale flaw like uh, goat feed or duck feed or something like that, uh, that would uh, allow an individual to realize they were dealing with something that is not quite human. And in a way, this is a version of that, right? Instead of a flaw, it is perfection. And like too much perfection is a kind of a flaw in any sort of design that is uh, allowing an inhuman entity to pass as human.
0: Yeah. And I also really like this idea of ancient approximations of relativity. Now, obviously I I don't think it's very likely that, that ancient Chinese people had experience with aliens or space travel, but I do think that relativity is one of those interesting things where you can intuit a kind of uh general version of the theory, just from experience, subjective experience of life, right? Like you right. don't actually know that, you know, that, the, uh, that mass or velocity alters space time, you know, or, or, makes a, you know, extends or contracts space time, but you do at least know that time doesn't always feel like it flows at the
1: same rate. Yeah, you would you would have some idea that uh, that, uh, you know, toiling in the soil uh, seems to take all day, uh, whereas just, you know, a, a, you know, an hour of pleasure seems to, to pass by in a, in a moment. Uh, so, it, yeah, it seems reasonable that there would uh, there would be uh, the basic human experience of, of, rel- of relativity that they would be able to draw on uh, and then work into some sort of, uh, you know, a, a mythological structure. But I do also like this idea how there are
0: myths of um, people going up into the heavens and then experiencing this time dilation. Uh, it mm-hmm. reminds me of like the scene in, uh, in Interstellar where they have to go down to the uh, planet that's very close to the black hole. And, you know, for them, they're down there for like 20 minutes or whatever. But they come back to their, uh, their, their friend and colleague up in the space station that's been orbiting it. And for him, it's been 20 years.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's pull up another uh, bit of listener mail here. This one comes to us from Jonathan. Jonathan writes, this moment in time is one of those where we, and hopefully you too, are reaping what you've been sowing for years. Well, that's a strange statement to make. I don't know <laughs> that sounds either <laughs> hopeful or, uh, or 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 potentially uh, ominous. I think he's being very nice, but yeah, that statement in isolation sounds like a threat. <laughs> <laughs> Over many years, he continues. Uh, uh, I and a huge number of other listeners have grown to trust Stuff to Blow Your Mind to the extent that when you do an episode on COVID nineteen, that we can depend not only on the factual information, some of which may be available from other sources, but also your sober, mature. Uh, well-considered advice, opinions, and evaluations. I realized while I was listening to that particular episode how glad I am that you've earned my trust from years of not only what you guys do, but how you do it. The other thing we're reaping now is the much-needed reassurance of your future podcasts to entertain, inform, stimulate, and provide a welcome, retreat, and sense of normalcy. As you know, lots of us have grown to consider you guys for virtual friends, and I'm sure all of us appreciate hearing from you regularly as a kind of social stimulation. On another subject, thanks uh, especially for the two-parter on invertebrate emotions. Hope you can do a future episode on plant intelligence. My own personal view is that consciousness in its definition as awareness or responsibility is a fundamental aspect of the universe and is a nearly infinite continuum. So the question might be best put not as do invertebrates have emotion, but where on the gradient of consciousness do they fall? Thanks a million, Jonathan.
0: Oh well, that that is far too kind, Jonathan. Uh, we appreciate hearing that we've earned your trust.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, and I mean, certainly, that's what we seek to do. Uh, with the with the uh, show in general. I, I will just remind everybody something about that COVID nineteen episode that we uh, that we also mentioned in that episode is that that particular episode was very much um, set in the time of its recording and it does not represent like the current, uh, best, uh, information about COVID-19.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, as we talked about in the episode, that's why we don't tend to do like developing news stories and stuff. But one example that comes to mind that uh, was a, was an extended discussion in the episode was, uh, was about masks. Now I, I remember at the time, we were going along with all of the public health advice that we were reading, saying like, you know, normal people don't need to go out and buy up masks and, and all that kind of thing. And, and that, that seemed to be like basically all of the expert messaging. Um, and then th- th- there's kind of a shift over time, right? Where clearly there were different values pulling in tension in what kind of messaging was going out to people about whether they should wear masks or not. On one hand, there was like a shortage of masks and, you know, healthcare workers need them and stuff like that. So there was kind of a a discouraging of people to wear masks. uh, And and a lot of that discouragement came along with the opinions of many experts that uh, like normal surgical masks are not very likely to reduce your uh, likelihood of catching the disease through inhaling it. But th- there's been a shift over time and I, and I think a quite reasonable one to saying, OK, if mask supplies are available, it actually is good to encourage people in general to wear masks because especially it helps prevent the spread of Covid nineteen, uh, you know, if you are infected with the coronavirus, and that, you know, I, I think people have made some very good cases since then that e- even if you are unlikely to be infected, you've been practicing social distancing and all that kind of stuff. It's good for you to wear a mask when you go out because, first of all, you know, it's still possible that you're infected and you don't know it, and this could help prevent you from spreading it. But second, the more people wear masks, the more it reduces the stigma on masks, so that you know, if somebody has a higher likelihood of being infected, they're not going to feel like, you know, like they're getting dagger eyes if they're out wearing a mask somewhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and, and, and I, you know, it's been noted too, that like you don't even necessarily need to fall back on some sort of like medical official mask, like just some sort of cloth covering for your, your face. Right. Yeah. Better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Hey, it's a chance to, to spruce up your personal fashion. Like if you had told me a year ago uh, that, you know, a year in the future, uh, my whole family would be decked out with fancy uh, handkerchiefs uh, around our necks when we go out, uh-huh. you know, and uh, um, uh, without adding the detail that we'd have to, you know, we'd be pulling them up onto our face uh, uh, frequently, uh, I, would have, uh, I would have laughed. But here I am wearing a, a jaunty uh, handkerchief from uh, MeUndies, uh, and, uh, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of fun in a way. Wait, me undies? Really? Yes, yeah, me undies. This is so they, not a paid plug, by the no, way. No, not a paid plug. Uh, though I, though I am a subscriber, because they they put out you know lots of fun designs for underwear, but they do other garments as well. And for a long time, they've been putting out these handkerchiefs. I don't know how many people were buying them previously, but it was suddenly like a really great option uh, because it's like stretchy material. It's and it's you know it has jazzy designs. So you can customize the color. So uh, yeah, so we ordered up ordered up three of those. We also have some some face masks that kind of go around the ears that were custom made by a friend of ours who does a lot of crafting, and she's been making a whole lot of different uh, masks for people, I think donating them uh, to places as well. That's great. Yeah, we got some homemade
0: masks from uh, from crafty family members as well.
1: Oh, yeah, I should mention, yeah, the one that uh, my friend made actually has, um, it doesn't have Gamera on it, but it has, um, what was the flying creature, uh, Gaos, Gaios, something. Oh, about Gaos! A yeah, the the radioactive bats that emit rays. Yeah, yeah. That's mm. on, on the face, face mask. I should take a picture of that and uh, and share that with the, uh, the the discussion module on Facebook. That for anybody who's not aware, that's where um, that's the Facebook group for stuff to blow your mind, where you can go and interact with other listeners, and then Joe and I sometimes pop in there as well.
0: Well, I would say the subject of uh, Gamma and Gaos uh, pr- provides a. Great segue to our next message, and this comes from our listener, Sebastien. Ah. I assume that's Sebastien and not Sebastian based on spelling and the, the fact that this person is in Canada, but I'm not positive. Uh, it's the E-N kind. Okay. But I'm sorry if I said that wrong one way or another. Anyway, the message begins. Hey, guys. I just took a look through your catalog and realized you've never done an episode on the topic of camp. As an old-fashioned gay man, camp is a huge part of the bread and butter of the media I prefer to consume. The topic itself may seem pretty literary, but it does have interesting implications. There are two broad definitions. Susan Sontag's failed seriousness, uh, such as the Schwarzenegger Conan movies or the first Evil Dead, (laughs) or John Waters' definition of camp being a celebration of poor taste. So not only John Waters himself, but also the entire Troma Studios catalog, as well as most exploitation genre movies. Some things are both, like American pro wrestling, and some things intend on being camp, but end up being accidentally really good.
1: My favorite example will always be Surf Nazis Must Die. Ooh, I have not seen Surf Nazis Must Die. I'm I'm vaguely familiar with it, but I haven't seen it. Is that a trauma? I don't know. I've
0: never seen that one either, though I have seen the, I remember seeing the box cover in the video store. Anyway, uh, the email goes on there's also some interesting research on the topic so camp is often associated with working class intellectualism and minority populations but it also has a strange link in that people who enjoy camp tend to also enjoy hard to watch high art cinema like Tarkovsky or Jodorowsky some camp mm. is both high art and in poor taste like some select Lynch or the Canadian punk director Bruce LeBruce, whose movie Hustler White is on the very short list of movies censored by Bravo and showcase think of characters like Richard Feynman when you think of a camp consumer erudite but also somehow low-brow or at least that's the stereotype maybe the lads from red letter media there's also a place for camp in music with irreverent bands like the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band or the Dead Milkmen, as well as literary camp, which is perhaps best captured in harlequin romance or pulp fiction on the one hand, or in the bizarro fiction genre on the other. Seriously, it only <laughs> takes an hour to read Shatner Quake. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It sounds good.
1: Uh, I Gosh, uh, I never read it, but I remember when it came out and, and talk of it was making the rounds. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure if
0: you guys took an interest, you could easily speak to it for an hour or more, as well as engage in the philosophy and sociology of it. Either way, keep up the good work. The Kamamuda episode is uh, so far my favorite, with the Library of Babel being a close second. These two episodes actually did blow my mind. Take care, Sebastian from Canada.
1: Oh, wow. Well, there's. it, it sounds like Sebastian is an, into a lot of the same things we are. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, he maybe brings up uh, like Jodorowsky, for example. I would mm-hmm. argue that Jodorowsky is, uh, there are plenty of moments where Jodorowsky is in poor taste, uh, oh, yeah. but is but also, you know, legitimately there is a lot of, um, a, a lot to admire in there. There's a lot of, uh, you know, very inspired, uh, you know, fantastic um, artistic achievement, uh, but it it often doesn't seem like there's much of a filter there uh, to keep one thing uh, from going through.
0: Yeah. uh, It's funny that he also mentions uh, Tarkovsky because uh, I just recently watched my first Tarkovsky movie. I watched Stalker. That's one I have not seen. Oh man, it's incredible. And I understand like some people are like, Oh my God, the Tarkovsky movies are too slow. I cannot deal with them. Uh, And it's true. The pacing is slow, but if you just allow yourself to commit to the slow pace, uh, Stalker, at least, is an incredible work of art. It's uh, I I can hardly think of another movie I've seen that comes anywhere close to it, and in the kind of experience it creates, it's an otherworldly
1: experience. Nice, I, yeah. I need to I need to give that one a viewing. That has been on my list for a while. I know they have it at, at VideoDrome, but um, yeah, the main one. My main my first experience with his work was uh, the Sacrifice. I think that was it. Or the fi- Not The Final Sacrifice, but yes, The Sacrifice. This was a 1986 film uh, that he put out, and it is uh, extremely slow. It has to do with a, uh, a, a middle-aged intellectual who attempts to bargain with God to stop an impending nuclear holocaust. And I, I seem to recall it all takes place in this kind of uh, you know um, isolated um, island or coastal environment. Mm. Uh, so it was very be- – I remember thinking – I saw it in college on the big screen – uh, and I remember thinking, this is beautiful, but also I wonder when it will ever end. Not that I necessarily, <laughs> you know, have my eye on the clock. I'm just like, it's really, it's really still going on. And I I, I don't know, I'd have no way of no, really knowing how close we are to the end here. Um, which is it's kind of a, a beautiful feeling that's lost in the way we watch watch cinema today. I think you know we generally mm-hmm. know either what the runtime's going to be, we have it in our schedule, uh, and if certainly if we're watching it on the small screen, you know we have a ticker there. You you pause it, and you can see exactly how much time you have remaining.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously, movies today tend toward the tight and the formulaic, um, and so it's it's incredibly refreshing to watch. So Stalker is also it's kind of a science fiction movie or very, very, uh, low technology science fiction. There's, there's this vague idea that there's this zone where something has happened. It's never been, it's never explicitly spelled out, but, uh, the stalker is a character who leads people into this restricted zone where the laws of reality don't quite seem to hold.
1: Oh man. I need to see that then. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's gotta, I gotta push that up on the list. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Um, Let's see. Well, what else was brought up in this uh, email from uh, Sebastian? Uh, Well, there's certainly he brings up uh, pro wrestling, uh, American pro wrestling specifically. Uh, That's a a pretty obvious example. He brings Mm -hmm. up Lynch. Um, Yeah, this is really there might be something, especially if there you know, there's been a fair amount uh, written on it over time. Camp could be something worth uh, looking into. I agree. Yeah. Um, real quick, having mentioned the the Library of, of Babel episode that we recorded uh, brings to mind um, uh, Borges. I have to say, just the other day, I was reading on my own, I was kind of reading about uh, the Minotaur a bit. And mm. uh, I realized that I had never read Borges' short story, The House of Asterion, uh, which is, a, like all of his work, super short. I think it's like two and a half pages or something, Mm -hmm. but it is the story of the Minotaur in the labyrinth from the Minotaur's point of view, and it is just beautiful. Um, It's it's a gay, you know, he's one of those, the master of the short story where you read something by Borges and you're like, why would anyone ever write anything longer than two and a half pages because this is (laughs) perfect? Oh, and by the way, I looked up Surf Nazis Must Die, and it is a trauma film. Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) 1987. So, really, that came out, uh, what, the year after the sacrifice? Okay. Oh, all right. Possible that maybe they were in the theater at the same time. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Probably not. It's a double feature. <laughs> all right. We'll be right back. All right. We're back. <sighs> Okay. So
0: this next email comes to us from Matthew. So Matthew had a a bunch of great stuff to say. A a big part of his email was focused on uh, response to our Hobbit biology episode. He had this interesting Hobbit self-domestication hypothesis, Uh, but it was a long email. So I apologize, Matthew. In the interest of time, I'm skipping to the second half of the email where he shares ideas in response to several different episodes and so one of them is also about Hobbit biology. Remember a lot of what we talked about in the Hobbit biology episode was about like Hobbit metabolism and caloric requirements. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they've got to eat so much. So Matthew says, what if the incredibly high caloric requirements of hobbits were due to some mutation, which reduced their ability to absorb or utilize a particular nutrient like an essential amino acid? In such case, they would have to eat much more of foods rich in this nutrient. It probably wouldn't go without general increase in caloric intake, which in turn would prime selection for individuals with faster metabolism because others would suffer greatly from obesity and other Consequences of overeating and thus have their fitness substantially reduced. This could happen in a food-abundant area such as the Shire, and if the initial population would be small enough to allow the founder effect. Also, other more positive effects of this mutation would make its survival in the gene pool more likely. By the way, this was the explanation for why Peter Watts vampires must eat humans. Uh, this is uh, Peter Watts vampires from the uh, from the book uh, Blind uh, Matthew says, they cannot synthesize Y-protocaterine, a vital peptide, which is unique to hominins. So the idea, yeah, there in the story was that these these plausibly biological vampires have to eat humans because they need this nutrient that, that basically only exists in apes like us.
1: All right. So kind of a Peter Wattsian uh, read on The Hobbit. Okay. Right. Uh, Then a second one, this one is related to the
0: idea of uh, plants developing intelligence. This has come up In other episodes, like, could you imagine other kingdoms of life, not animals, but maybe plants or fungi or whatever, ever, ever over billions of years of evolution, developing intelligence of their own? Matthew mentioned somebody named Isaac Arthur. He says, if you don't know this guy, I highly recommend his YouTube channel. He mentioned in one of his episodes that it would be more plausible for fungi to develop intelligence than plants, since they do not rely on a regular and perpetual source of energy, such as sunlight. If there's source of energy gets depleted, this may motivate them to search for another one, which would require some degree of mobility and perhaps in a more complex and unpredictable environment, some kind of higher intelligence. I like this idea.
1: All right. Well, that's that's a pretty, pretty cool
0: take, I'll admit. Third, now this one is in response to our episode of Invention, where we talked about the invention of words and how new words are formed. One of the things we talked about was uh, back formation and false etymologies. Uh, Matthew singles out the word algorithm as an interesting example of a word invented by back formation. I looked this up, and this is extremely interesting. So. Apparently, the word algorithm comes to English through several steps, beginning with the medieval Latin Algorismus, which is actually a botched transliteration of a proper name, there was a medieval Persian polymath named Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi, and when his works on mathematics were translated into Latin, the name al-Khwarizmi got changed into algorismus, which became algorithm over time. Uh, so this this is like a lost reference to an actual person's name. Very fascinating. And then finally, Matthew brings up the subject of invertebrate emotions, uh, which we did a two-parter about. And he says, when you did it, I couldn't believe you didn't mention this. And he makes reference to uh, an article in The Guardian uh, where there's a study where basically they were giving MDMA to octopuses. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so Matthew says, when uh, given MDMA, octopuses act similarly to human users of MDMA, whose behavior under its influence we would interpret as signs of kindness, greater openness to fellow Specimens and desire for closure and intimacy, uh, and I looked this up. It apparently, when you give octopuses MDMA, a lot of their conspecific aggressiveness decreases or vanishes. Normally, octopuses are not very social and they're not very friendly to each other. When one octopus comes on the other, they often, you know, fight or try to eat each other or something. When you give octopuses MDMA, apparently, they're much more likely to to approach peacefully and sort of like extend arms toward one another.
1: Hmm, interesting. I mean, yeah, because octop- octopuses are generally uh you know, solitary creatures. This this brings to mind like the the possibility like what if you had something like uh the uh the monolith in 2001 a space odyssey, uh, but instead of like uh uh, imbuing uh surrounding organisms with uh with the knowledge of tool use what if it had kind of an mdma effect on them and right and uh inspired them to uh to be more supportive and uh um uh, you know and accepting of of each other Uh, i wonder what the the long-term effects would that would of that would be for a species
0: yeah instead of giving hominins uh you know, like violent mechanical ingenuity, it gives octopuses uh, love. I bring you love.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they would have all these, they would just have been eaten by, um, what were they, leopards or jag? I can't remember, jaguars in the in the movie. Oh, yeah. I think there's a leopard. Yeah. Yeah. the leopard would have just eaten all of them, maybe. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked. Maybe that was the first monolith that they sent down.
0: Anyway, Matthew finishes by saying, thank you for all your work and sorry for my English. I'm sure I've made at least a few mistakes. No, Matthew, your English is great. Um, Yeah, far better than my Polish. Right. (laughs) I've been listening to Stuff to Blow Your Mind and more recently Invention for almost two years and dug through a lot of episodes to 2015 or thereabouts. Podcasts on my subscribed list come and go, but since I discovered you, there probably wasn't a single week when your voice didn't play in my earbuds. Best regards, Matthew from Poland. Oh, well, that was so sweet. What a great
1: email, Matthew. Yeah, that was good. Lots of cool ideas in there. All right, here's another bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Lauren, and it's another Hobbit email. Hi, Robert and Joe. Love the podcast, and it's keeping me interested and motivated to learn new things during these strange times. A quick note about dinner versus supper in your Biology of the Hobbit episode, (laughs) since you both said you weren't sure of the difference. It's a very modern thing to use these terms interchangeably, but anyone who's read a lot of books set in Regency England, as I have, will know that... One ate dinner, probably around 7 p.m. before one attended a ball or evening's entertainment, and one ate supper a few hours later during the ball to keep up your energy for dancing or <laughs> after coming home from the theater. Very <laughs> uh, tonish use of these words and very British. So while the hobbits don't seem very aristocratic, they do seem very British. And it's probably why Tolkien had them eating both dinner and supper along with their other meals. Thanks for all you do, Lauren. Well, wait. Were the hobbits having to go
0: out dancing? I don't to eat dinner to, or eat supper to keep their energy up. I don't remember a lot of
1: dancing. Well, they had festivals and celebrations, you know. I guess um, so, you know, and certainly, if, especially if you're Bilbo, you might have to entertain a lot of out-of-town guests for an extended period of time. That's true. Well, thank you, Lauren. I I, I appreciate that clarification. <laughs>
0: And then on a very similar subject, we got this next message from Samantha. Samantha says, hi, guys. In your recent Biology of the Hobbit episode, you mused on what the difference was between dinner and supper in regards to the different meals enjoyed by hobbits. While I can't speak to the hobbit lifestyle, I am in a relationship with a man who used to power lift. And I can tell you that I've decided that the difference is that dinner is the meal he eats with me and supper is the meal afterward that he eats in bed before going to (laughs) sleep. (laughs) It's not so much a midnight snack as a midnight entree. Anyway, oh, wow. thanks for the amazing work you guys do, and thanks for the extra episodes lately, Sam.
1: Well, I, what I love about this is just that it brings to mind the possibility <laughs> of um, of powerlifter hobbits, and it's pretty great.
0: Uh huh. What a hobbit strongmen look
1: like? I want to see that. I mean, I can kind of. Aren't we told? Uh, was it the Tooks that were more uh, adventurous? Maybe they were kind of, of uh, powerlifters in their own way. Oh, maybe. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Anna. Hi, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to your episode on Hobbits. This reminded me of how my dad used to have a cat called Frodo. The cat used to go on long journeys in the car with him. This got me thinking how cats have many of the same characteristics as Hobbits. And uh, she lists them for us. They like their home comforts true. Uh, they can be very adventurous when they want to be. They're very light on foot. Uh, they are good at hiding and stealing things. Uh, they would prefer to find a few people they like and only hang around them. They have hair on their feet. They're small. They like fish. They also really enjoy eating. I wonder if <laughs> anyone else has noticed these similarities. Anna? I, I find no fault in this. No, th- yeah, this sounds about right. Uh, yeah, As a cat owner, uh, I can say my cat is is often like a hobbit, except when she is uh, hunting my feet for sport in the house, in which case I would say she's more like a goblin. This Maybe she's more like Sneagle, uh, <laughs> uh or Gollum in this respect. So she is like a hobbit, but like a hobbit whose uh, soul has been tarnished and perverted by the power of the ring over time. She thinks your feet are nasty tricksy humans is yeah I, I think the ring in this uh, situation would be um, human domestication or you know or certainly being being asked to live inside a house is kind of the ring here because it, that can only corrupt and and alter their their psychology our cat is an indoor cat um but clearly she wants to go outside and her behavior is such that it ultimately you know evolutionarily speaking it belongs outside but we've made this pact, right, that we're going to keep her inside because she also does not belong in the immediate vicinity. She doesn't belong out there eating uh, birds and whatnot. Um, You know, and likewise, she would end up getting in fights with the local ferals. She'd be run off or she'd be hit by a car. Like there's, you know, all these other considerations. But clearly we're dealing with a a very artificial uh, environment, artificial situation that has been brought on by humans uh, spreading themselves and their varmints around the world. And nine rings to the kings of cats who desire power above all else. <laughs> but to some, I know some people are going to, going to want to remind us uh, cats are only semi-domesticated. And uh, again, I, I do agree with that. They're they clearly uh, not on the same uh, uh, level as the dog and being uh, you know, a part of our, our, our community. No knock on them, of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, who would the dogs be in, um, uh, in Middle-earth? Oh, I don't know. Who's loyal and true? Uh
0: mm. the only brew for the brave and true. Maybe, maybe
1: they would be the the dwarves, you know? No, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. It could be dwarves. Sometimes maybe they d- dig too deep. <laughs> dogs bring are, up something that shouldn't be brought up to the
0: surface. Dogs are all Tom Bombadil. They're just an entire <laughs> species of bombadils. <laughs> All right, so he- here's one that uh, I didn't know if we'd hear anything back on in our episode about uh, the Bone Palace where we talked about uh, Stone Age huts made out of uh, made out of mammoth bones. We ended up talking about a house in Wyoming, I believe, that is made out of, or purported at least to be made out of dinosaur bones or dinosaur fossils, and we ended up saying, like, hey, do we have any listeners in Wyoming? I know it is a sparsely populated place, but we heard from a couple. I was delighted. (laughs) So, uh, first of all, we heard from Louise, who said, Hi, Robert and Joe. Uh, First of all, love the podcast. I heard the Wyoming mention in the Bone Palace episode. I thought it was pretty funny. As a matter of fact, I listened to you guys from Casper, Wyoming, and thought I might as well send an email about it i hope i'm not the only one listening from over here but you never know keep up the good work the podcast is awesome louise and then we also heard from landon who said uh landon listens from cheyenne wyoming and if uh, and says if we d- ever do a show in wyoming that uh that landon will bring
1: friends so we'll, we'll keep you posted <laughs> all right good to know all right uh, here we have a listener mail from Brittany about our episodes on Deja Vu. Hey guys, I just finished listening to your second episode on Deja Vu, which I found very interesting. You ask at one point for listener experience with Deja Paradox, feeling like you have experienced a paradox before. As you described it, I recognized it as a feeling I sometimes experience during religious exercises such as prayer. When I am contemplating the paradoxes inherent in my faith, on rare occasions I do get a flash of something very much like Deja Vu. The paradox I am meditating on seems to take on a new depth and become somehow more essentially contradictory, more paradoxical, while simultaneously feeling powerfully familiar and deeply fundamentally necessary to reality. As it is, I have always known this paradox to be real, but I am usually blind to it, and it is only clear in little flashes like these. Yet at the same time, I am experiencing their depth in a way I know is entirely new. Obviously, I am familiar with the surface paradox I am contemplating in in these times, so perhaps this isn't a perfect fit, but the paradox uh, I I seem to uncover is always new to me and entirely beyond my ability to describe, and that is when I get a déjà vu-like experience. I had never thought about it in those terms before, but the subjective experience is remarkably similar to my experience with déjà vu. I think this has happened maybe three times in my life, but it's such a powerful experience, even with how short it is that I remember each one. Anyway, now that I wrote all of all of that out, I'm questioning whether this is truly Deja Paradox or not. But maybe you can decide if you think it counts. Thanks for all the work you put into the show. I truly love exploring the weird and cool things of the universe with you both, Brittany. Oh, thanks, Brittany. Yeah, I found that really interesting because it got me thinking
0: about... What is the like what is supposed to be happening in the religious practices that encourage you to contemplate a paradox? I, I don't know how widespread this is. like if there's something like this in almost every religion, the main examples I can think of are in like Zen Buddhism, which encourages the the contemplation of paradoxes. and in Christianity, you know, one tradition of Christianity has a kind of um mystical flavor that encourages you encourages you to think about the apparent paradox of the Trinity, you know that there can be one being in three, how is that possible and so forth. But I'm sure there are things like this in other religions too.
1: Yeah, and and as for whether this counts as deja, paradox, deja vu, I don't know, I, I'm a kind of of the mind that you know deja vu when you feel it. Like it's it's undeniable. Mm-hmm. So if one is inclined to interpret what is happening as deja vu, then it is probably deja vu or some related experience. You know, like I would I would lean into the individual's experience of the thing.
0: Yeah, deja vu is in the sensation, not in any kind of like externally verifiable quality. So, yeah, it's, if it feels like deja vu, it's deja vu. All right. Well, I think we need to take another break, but then we will be right back uh, to round this out with a couple more emails.
1: All right, we're back. Okay, so we got a
0: bunch of great mail about our episodes on Medusa. This first message comes from Jim, Jim in New Jersey, who's a longtime correspondent. Jim says, "Robert and Joe, uh, your painted eyes comment to protect cattle from lions in Medusa Two reminded me of this story about eyes watching those with an honor system for office refreshments." And he links to an uh, to a piece by Freakonomics that's about a study on whether you know you can basically use scarecrows to affect uh, honorable or honest behavior of humans in an office setting. Um, so to read a quote that he provides quote. Melissa Bateson and colleagues at Newcastle University in the UK put up new price lists each week in their psychology department coffee room. Prices were unchanged, but each week there was a photocopied picture at the top of the list, measuring 15 by 3 centimeters, of either flowers or the eyes of real faces. The faces varied, but the eyes always looked directly at the observer. In weeks with eyes on the list, staff paid 2.76 times as much for their drinks as in weeks with flowers. Quote, frankly, we were staggered by the size of the effect, uh, Gilbert Roberts, one of the researchers, told New Scientist. So, yeah, it looks like here uh, you just put up a picture of eyes staring at somebody. Maybe, I don't know if a Gorgonian image would work, but any kind of, like, image of eyes looking right at you, this may have a psychological effect that discourages uh, sneaky or or stingy or dishonest behavior.
1: <laughs> All right. This one comes to us from uh, Carolina. Uh, Carolina writes, in the head of the Medusa part two, you discuss how monster faces in ancient art are depicted looking back at the observer. It made me think of the Ti a monstrous creature that frequently is depicted on Shang Dynasty ceremonial bronze vessels, which looks kind of like a tiger with a bull's horns. Uh, the the Taoti image was too common to have been meaningless, uh, but there are no ex- extant records from the Shang Dynasty indicating what it signifies. After listening to the episode, it crossed my mind that the Taoti images might have been apotropaic. It was a fascinating episode and left me with a lot to think about. Thank you. Best regards, Carolina. I looked up the Tauti image, and it, it is very interesting.
0: It's like a, um, it almost, in some ways, looks kind of like ancient Mesoamerican art with the mm-hmm. some of some of the types of the way the lines come together to form the facial structure of, of the monster. I, I, I really liked it.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is pretty cool. I I don't think I was familiar with this um, this particular motif, but uh, it's it's quite interesting.
0: Apparently, this is also the name they give to the monsters in that Great Wall movie. I never saw the movie, but I remember that oh. thing. It has like Matt Damon in it or something where there's like oh, monsters yes. attacking the Great Wall and and all these warriors have to fight them off. The monsters are like these big, you know, lizard, dog, frog type things. And I think they're supposed to be touty.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing the trailer for I'm really surprised I didn't see that one on an airplane. That looks like a good airplane viewing.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, one more message about Medusa. This comes from Dan. Dan says, Hello again, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to part one of your Medusa episode. I greatly enjoyed it and look forward to part two. I'm writing to you regarding movie depictions of Medusa. From listening to the podcast and watching your trailer talk videos on YouTube, whoa, that's a blast from the oh, past. Oh, yeah, it um, is. I know you both love Hammer Horror, so I was wondering if you're familiar with The Gorgon, a movie from 1964 starring Peter Cushing, the man with cheekbones that could cut diamonds, and Christopher Lee. I think that, that may
1: be a reference to something we said about him in the past. It, um, it definitely is. It was... I. Th- think it was possibly uncanny valley where we were talking specifically about peter cushing as resurrected in the star wars movie rogue one it yeah yeah it's on my mind because i've just watched rogue one again the other day as part of the, the the family viewing of all the star wars movies Dan, you're going deep in the
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind lore. This is crazy. Um, uh, So Dan goes on, I've never seen the film talking about the Gorgon from 1964, but I remember reading about it a long time ago in Jeff Rovin's Encyclopedia of Monsters. I've included a link to the trailer below. I hope you are safe and doing well under these current circumstances. May Krom watch over and protect both of your families, Dan. (laughs) Oh, well, that's so sweet, Dan. And I I went and I watched this trailer. Thank you so much for sharing. I did not know about this movie and now I'm going to watch because not only does it not only is it Hammer horror with a Gorgon in it, but also Christopher Lee is so scruffy looking in this movie. He's got this bushy mustache and, and and bushy hair. He he looks extremely unkempt for for Christopher Lee.
1: Yeah, like he looks more unkempt in this film than he does when he's playing the Mummy or Frankenstein, which is strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he looks—he looks pretty rough in this one. Uh, I have never seen it, but after this email came in, I did watch the trailer, and it looks like a lot of fun. I mean, all the all the Hammer horror films look like a lot of fun, um, and I guess I'd probably seen the trailer before because and forgotten about it because I have this this beloved disc. I love compilations of trailers, and I have a a Hammer Horror Mm. Films uh, comp disc, uh, an official one uh, from years back, and I still occasionally put that on, and I'll just let the the beautiful trailers roll over me. I'm going to say, maybe I'm going to watch The Gorgon tonight. Yeah, it looks looks fun. I scanned uh, the other people involved, and um, there's no one else on the IMDb that I'm especially familiar with, but you know, those films tended to be filled with a, a lot of, a uh, lot of very talented uh, uh, actors, even if you, you don't know who they are.
0: It was directed by Terrence Fisher. I, I was just looking this up here. Yes. It, Terrence Fisher directed the hammer version of the mummy that has Christopher Lee as the mummy and also has Peter Cushing in it as the kind of like uh, the bony faced hero. And, uh, and, and I've got a, a copy of the Belgian version of the poster for this movie on the wall in my office for the mummy, where it's not called The Mummy, it's called Les Maledictions de Ferrand.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, he also directed, He I mean, he did, Trans Fisher directed a bunch of, of Hammer horror films. He also directed Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell from '74, which has one of my favorite monster designs from any of these because it looks like a it looks like a man ape that had the top of its head sewn back on, <laughs> and the monster was played by uh, David. Uh, what is it, David Prose? David Prowse, uh, Darth Vader himself. Oh uh, wow. And of course, Peter Cushing was in it as uh, Baron Frankenstein. So you had, uh, you know, wonderful um, uh, 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 Star Wars uh, energy going on in that film as well. In this, of course, we're just we're pitching uh, our next podcast, which will be uh, Robert and Joe just talk about Hammer Horror movies uh, for uh, I for a 30 minute blocks of it. time. Let's do it. Would anybody listen? I don't know. If,
0: if we had an audience for that, I would absolutely do a Hammer Horror podcast.
1: Oh yeah, there's so many there's plenty to talk about. So, yeah, let the let the letter writing campaign begin. All right, here's another one this one comes to us from Tyler. Tyler says, "Hey guys, just wanted to reach out and say, hey, I'm listening to your episode on cars and driving where you talked about the knowledge that taxi drivers of yesteryear, uh, specifically uh, in London, uh, had to have and how that has been shown to generate more gray matter in the brain. Not sure if you've considered it, but I think bicycle messengers could be a more current example of this. I worked as a bicycle messenger for three years in the city. Most messengers ride brakeless bicycles designed to be raced on uh, velodromes. It seems crazy, but they are simple machines that are extremely durable and really reliable. They give the user a lot of control and feedback. Messengers ride in dense and uh, unpredictable urban traffic, and like taxi drivers, have varying destinations around the city throughout the day. They're often in this setting for eight or more hours a day. On top of that, their brakeless bikes can't stop very fast. As a result, they end up developing incredible predictive and spatial awareness skills. It gets to the point that they can fairly accurately predict traffic aberrations and develop this sort of third eye where they know what's going to happen three seconds into the future. I would imagine that researchers would find similar growth of gray matter in these subjects. Just thought I'd share. Cheers, T. That's interesting and scary.
0: I, yeah. I I, I admit, I. so I know how to ride a bike, but I have not done a lot of bicycle riding as an adult. And the idea of like cutting around on a brakeless bike in city traffic, it's just, it fills me with dread.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I haven't done a lot of, bicycle riding, and what I have done as an adult has been, um, is, has not been in a like a purely urban setting, like it's not been on the streets of Atlanta or anything, and uh, and, and I have to say that the, uh, I certainly feel this desire, especially now, like maybe I need to get a bike, maybe now is the time to get a bike, um, and it may be, but on the other hand, I am, um, you know, a little trepidatious about getting out there on the streets, even in their current form. Uh,
0: Robert, you want to finish up with
1: these emails about pointing? yeah let's get into pointing we we had a, a wonderful two partner on that <laughs> Uh, So this one comes to us from Sophia. Hi, just listened to your 2 part on pointing. Very intriguing stuff. What came to my mind regarding pointing in non-human animals and curious animal communication in general was the way that bees communicate in a hive using something called a waggle dance to tell each other where food, water can be found. With these movements, they can communicate the direction and distance to the source with amazingly high precision. Thought you might find it interesting. Love your show. Keep up the great work. Best regards, Sophia.
0: Yeah, I don't know how I didn't think of this in the episode. Clearly, this is an example of pointing, right? It indicates directionality and it directs the attention of other animals to the target.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know why I didn't think of this either. I was even fishing around a little bit uh, for information about pointing in, uh, in uh, eusocial uh, uh, insects. And uh, yeah, here we have an example. <coughs>
0: This next message comes from Gilead. Gilead says, Hi, Joe and Robert. First, I'd like to thank you for the wonderful podcast you put out every week. It's a great way for me to pass my commute and experience new stuff with your really neat style of presenting. Thank you. Two points I thought you might find interesting in connection to your latest episode on pointing. First, the morning after I listened to your podcast, I went to the supermarket for my weekly purchase of goods. And since they rearranged it, I found it difficult to find the stuff I usually buy. I stopped by a worker to ask her where rice was and she pointed out the direction. I noticed that she was turning her wrist at 90 degrees to the right, so the back of her hand was facing right instead of up. It immediately clicked with all that you talked about. As I was walking in the direction she indicated, looking around to find the rice, I understood that she was trying to indicate that the rice was hidden behind a corner to the left. It was pretty neat to see what you were talking about in real-life action, right? So I think what they're saying here is that the pointing of the hand the hand turned So that it was oriented. So the fingertip could have reached around to touch the rice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But anyway, going on with the email, I don't think she was even aware that she did that, nor am I sure that I would have picked up on it if I hadn't listened to your podcast. Second, growing up in Israel in the 80s, there was only one public channel on TV. At the end of each day, before sounding the national anthem and ending the transmission, yes, that's the way it was back then, they would read one verse from the Bible using the traditional Yad. Remember, we brought that up in the episode. It was like a Mm -hmm. a pointing device that has sometimes a little hand shape at the end of it uh, that you can scan along on the Torah with or scan along on the text. Uh, Gilead continues. So I thought it might be interesting for you to see how that actually looked, since it was part of the TV experience of every kid at that time. Here's a link you can watch. Uh, I did watch the link, and it looks very interesting. I also like the way that as the 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 reader is moving along the text with the odd and reading out loud, the camera is also slowly zooming out. I don't know exactly. It, it creates this very weird feeling of uh, of kind of like power and revelation
1: yes i I watch this as well it's 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 wonderful I would love to share it with everyone but the title of the YouTube is in Hebrew and i'm uh, <laughs> and I'm not sure how to uh, how to share that but but it's really interesting uh, I, I like it a lot yeah uh, anyway Gilead finishes thanks again and keep up the great work <laughs> All right, this one comes to us from Matt. Good day, Robert and Joe. I've written to you before in response to an episode of Invention, though not yet for stuff to blow your mind. Thought I would send a note regarding your most recent episode on Pointing Part 2. Specifically, you briefly discussed plant communication and whether there is any directional element to it. I farm with my family in southwestern Ontario, but my day gig is working as a freelance agriculture and science writer. The subject of plant communication, specifically crop responses and communication in response to weeds, is a subject I've covered a number of times. It's not exactly the same subject as you both discussed, but it is related. University of Guelph research back in the 1980s showed the presence of weeds early in the growing season caused clearly quantifiable drops in crop yields, several bushels per day for corn, in fact, which is quite alarming for farmers. But the mechanism by which this happens has not been well understood until recently. Now we know these yield drops are a direct result of crops detecting and communicating the presence of weeds even before seedlings emerge from the soil. That detection cues stress-induced adaptive responses, which have a rapid and irreversible negative effect on yield. This is why early season weed control is so vital vital for the farm business. The detection process itself works as corn and soybeans register light reflected from the far red end of the spectrum by weeds. Crop seedlings can even perform this detection and responsive action before emerging from the ground, permanently altering their own morphology. The younger the plant, the more susceptible it is. Uh, And then uh, he also uh, shares the article that he's referencing. Anyway, I hope you find the subject interesting as I did. And one last thing, I would also like to reiterate how thankful I am to have such excellent high-quality audio content to consume during these strange days. Yes, that's a H.P. Lovecraft reference. Uh, (laughs) When that stress beastie gets its teeth in, sometimes it's the apparent conversations with virtual friends that make all the difference. Thanks very much for your work. Stay healthy and remember to have a good time as well. Matt. Thanks, Matt. Uh, we were we weren't sure what the H.P. Lovecraft reference there is. It the phrase "Strange Days"? I don't I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, there's certainly there's some plant shenanigans in uh, in at least one H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story, but hmm. uh, um, this may be a, a way Homer. Uh, of course, I'm always home now, so it's not <laughs> not really. I guess my way to another room. It will suddenly occur to me what he's uh, referencing, and we'll have to bring it up on another uh, on another another episode.
0: All right, this next message comes to us from Ilva, and this will be the last one. So Ilva says, Hello! While I've been an avid listener for nine years now, I've never quite felt like emailing you before. I just found today's episode on pointing a lot of fun, partly because I always love stuff on communication because I'm autistic, and finer social skills often pass me by. I'm suddenly made aware of all the times I've made a faux pas and pointed at myself and other people with an extended finger. Oops. (laughs) I'd say, you know, depending on the context, it might not have been a faux pas. It's just like, I don't know, it, it, it varies, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's good. Situation is key. Yeah, but Ilva continues, uh, and and partly because of the non-human animals part. I have a medical alert and service dog. He's been with me for nine years, and he's smart. Suddenly, I realized how much of our communication happens by me pointing at things. I can point with my hand, finger, an object like a shoehorn, or with my foot. Eyeline is not necessary because I wear sunglasses outside and it works great without him knowing my line of sight. It's a huge part of our everyday life bring me that thing, go over there, put that thing there, etc. While he knows a lot of words and commands, pointing is really the only way to differentiate between different pairs of shoes or give him directions. I cannot recall consciously teaching him this, but it's never been a problem for him. He also does some sort of pointing on his own. He indicates things I should pay attention to by scratching his paw on the floor in front of it, like dropped medication he's not allowed to touch, or when he just wants me to give him something, or his toy is stuck under the sofa, or I need to refill the water bowl and such. My other dog was picked up as an adult from the street four years ago, and while he's not a herding dog like my service dog, he's probably of normal dog intelligence, and pointing just goes over his head. With him, I've tried to train it, but he gets what I mean maybe 25% of the time, and that's a lot better than when I first got him home. Possibly it's a skill acquired in puppyhood while interacting with humans, if it's not inherent. This episode was very interesting, and I hope you can talk more to an elephant-slash-dolphin expert I'm sending you a picture of the dog in question, Atlas, uh, and much appreciation from me here in Sweden, Ilva. Uh, and what
1: an adorable dog in this picture! It's a pretty good dog, and it's it's looking up. I thought I'd heard that dogs couldn't do that. But. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Know. You should check
0: your sources on that. <laughs> Well, this has been a great mailbag. Thank you, everyone, so much for getting in touch. Um, this, is, this has been really great. And as we always say, you know, if your message wasn't featured, uh, please don't take it personally. We, we we get too much to read on the show, uh, but we really do appreciate all the correspondence we get.
1: Yeah, I mean, and also lots of cool stuff comes up on um, the discussion module, the, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Facebook group. Uh, somebody shared a video of someone pointing with both fingers on a basketball court. Oh yeah, 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 uh, and it was it was incredibly aggressive, was what they were pointing
0: <laughs> out. Was that, well, you know, we talked about the idea of pointing with both hands, uh, seemingly as a way to blunt the taboo of pointing with a particular hand or pointing with an index finger. But in this case, is the pointing with both hands happened after like somebody got dunked on, and then the mm-hmm. guy who dunked on the other guy pointed at him with both hands as he's lying on the floor. And it was like, it, it was the most savage owning I've ever seen.
1: <laughs> All right. So yeah, so probably don't try that um, in real life unless you're really going for a, um, a savage presentation like that. All right. Well, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. It's wherever you get your podcast, And wherever that happens to be, just make sure that you rate that you review and that you subscribe. Those are the, the three things that you can, you can do that really help out the show. Also, in general, if you enjoy the show, you know, share it with other people. Tell them about it. If there's an episode that, uh, you know, maybe it's episode by episode. You know, we cover a lot of ground. Not every episode of the show is going to appeal to everybody. But, you know, occasionally you're going to come across one where you're like, you know, I bet Uncle Steve would dig this episode <laughs> of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I'm going to send it to him. That's right. Get us into Steve's ears.
0: That's that's your job this week.
1: Yeah, we're going after that Steve
0: demographic. <laughs> anyway, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or
2: wherever you listen to
0: your favorite shows.